It's time for some cheap talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. Going to a party! Hello, kitties, and welcome once again to Cheap Talk with Trick Chat. So good to see you once again. Welcome to another episode. This is a very special episode. We're going to be doing a Cheap Trick 101 class, and we're going to discuss the influences that led up to the band becoming Cheap Trick that we know, and we're going to look at a pivotal band in in their, uh, would you say, like or admiration, The Move and their influence on Cheap Trick. The band uh, did a lot with them, and we're going to delve into that. BJ is uh, going to tear it up as only he can. Welcome, BJ. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, Sadly, Matt could not be here today, but uh, he's getting the Kiss Room ready today, so that'll also give you a little indication of when we recorded this. Um, We threw a little something out on the Facebook page, and... We, uh, we uh, told people what we were going to do as far as this episode, and we also said if you have a few questions, we try to answer them. So we're just going to go through uh, some of the questions, and whether we have answers or not, we'll either say pass or we'll give our opinion on it. Kirk Randall says, hey, Ken and BJ, what's the story behind the writing of Heaven Tonight, and what influenced them to write it? First off, hi, Kirk. Glad to see you there. Uh, BJ, what do you know about the song Heaven Tonight? Um, just that it's about drugs, maybe a rock star overdosing and dying or coming close to it, probably based on, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, you know. Or something. Dead at 27, you know. Yeah, the old Dead at 27 club. Um, yeah, again, this is one of those songs that's, about suicide and I always like the quirkier weirder darker side of Cheap Trick like the first couple albums has especially the first album has all that great weirdness that I that I love so much um, you know when when I hear this song I always think of uh, Downed in a way like this is part of that you know what I'm saying like if it were a if uh, Rick were to write a, a rock opera about a, a rock star this could Downed and uh, Heaven Tonight could be part of that story. It would be about a murderer who commits suicide at the end. <laughs> there you go. And uh, so we we sought out some of the band, and uh, we sent a message to Mr. Bunny Carlos, and we said, Bun, we have a question from a fan about the song Heaven Tonight. Do you know what it is about and what the inspiration behind it was? Bunny wrote back and said, It's about overdosing, need I say more? The man always had uh, a brevity about him, so he continues with that. So, Bunny, we thank you for that answer. So there's that one question taken care of. Uh, next one is Neil Guido. How does Robin keep his voice so prime sounding consistently, even though he smokes or has smoked? He must eat well, work out, and or having outstanding genetics 
as does the other things to keep those vocal muscles he uses all the time so strong and powerful. He never ceases to amaze me. Well, all the Robin girls would say that he definitely has good genetics, right, PJ? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the main factor. He was born with that great voice. And, you know, he has, there have been some chinks in the armor maybe in the last five or ten years that you notice when you go to the shows where he can't quite, like I always remember the moment when I saw him when he took the really high part in If, in if You Want My Love and he took it down instead of up, like in the bridge. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, I remember noticing the first time I saw him do that and thinking, wow, he's not invincible, you know? Well, it happens to everybody. Yeah, but of course. I, I, one thing that sets Robin apart from a lot of other uh, singers is that he's kind of always been smart about the choices that he makes. Whereas except, some except, just, except for smoking. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, there you go, yeah. But apparently it seems to work for him. So uh, I don't know, the guy is just amazing. Uh, my, my, my wife and I, we were watching some clips on YouTube on the, the big screen, and she just can't get over how he sounds the same as he did back in the 70s. It's, just, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, Tracy L. Scott said that Robin is an alien, the good kind, but an alien no less. So Well, and he, he puts his voice through so much every show, you know. Well, let's, uh, let's get back to these questions. Um, Ted LaRange says that he's got tickets for Robin's acoustic performance here in Albany, so enjoy that. That should be cool. Uh, Neil Guido, again, is envious and hopes that RZB comes near him. Uh, Lori Schlitt hopes to see him at the performance. Uh, <laughs> and uh, let's see, I'm looking through here. I, I, I should have, like, uh, Letterman where he, he like, flips the... Uh, cards out, you know, after each question. Yeah. Uh, Paul Stam says the move is a ph phenomenal band, big influence on Paul Stanley Kiss as well. So that's cool. Our ever lovely Bunny Barnett says, will they ever release the Albini version of In Color? Of course, we don't know because we're not the band or anything. But what do you think? Do you think that'll ever see the light of day, BJ? Probably. Um, I don't think it was ever finished. So they would probably want to finish it, but I don't know. I can't imagine them not getting it out at some point. I, of course, think they should just do the digital download and be done with it. And, well, but and I they, probably, they probably know that all the fans already have it anyways. But they probably would rather the fans have something that's more polished or I don't know. So we're all hoping for that. Uh, Stephanie Stewart Morgan asks if she's not too late, and you're not. Why doesn't Tom sing more songs, and does his version of Voices still exist somewhere? Have you ever heard that? No, I haven't. I have not either. That's, that's so sad. Um, well, why do you think Tom doesn't sing more songs? Two words, Robin Zander. <laughs> it's, it's not that Robin doesn't want him to. It's just that when you have a utility player like Robin who can do so much you almost get out of his way and honestly tom can't sing <laughs> I hey, mean, <laughs> that's bj said that i think tom can sing i think he has a rock and roll voice meaning that you know it's like ace fraley for example they have a certain thing you know it's, well, it's kind of the guy from the trucks you know I, he had a certain voice yeah. and that you know well I, I don't know if i would call what he does and i know what i want singing 
<laughs> Blasphemy. <laughs> that's send all hate mail to BJ Kahuna. No, um, anyway. uh, we also have uh, Matthew Nadow says hi, and uh, Matthew Nadow says if he's not too late, and of course you're not, is there really a 27 minute version of Pop Drone out there somewhere? Have you ever heard of a, the 27 minute version of Pop Drone? No, and I would never want to hear it either. No, I, I think that that is that something that Rick was kind of maybe kidding about, maybe? Probably. Yeah. Mm. That could be. That could be. He does that a bit. Daniel Richmond says, my question is, is, did the band ever do a full U.S. arena headlining tour back in their head day, uh, heyday? Well, beach? I don't know what uh, the definition of full would be. Um, I'm sure they did do an arena tour. Um, how long it lasted or how many cities they hit, you know. I don't really know. I didn't look. I didn't look into it. Did you research it at all? Nope. I'm a bad human being. Arena tour headlining. I mean, they must have. You know, Dream Police era. Like I remember the All Shook Up tour. You know, yeah. that thing. Yeah. And uh, I remember when they were on Dream Police. They. I remember they came through Richfield Coliseum and played there. So they must have. But I think that a lot of it seems like it's. Uh, like they were opening up for Kiss and you know for so long and stuff like that and uh, it just it just seemed like their their time to be a headliner was not as long as as I feel it should have been. Yeah, because things change so much. I mean, anybody that had a career like in 1978 by 1980 they were in trouble because music had changed so much. I mean, you think about all the bands that. Uh, you know, except like with the exception of uh, ACDC, you know, they were kind of like uh, trend proof. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was a lot of bands that were like trying to redefine themselves and lost their footing and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. Uh, hopefully your answer's in there somewhere. And Jada Jack says, how many guitars does Rick really own? One, one could say too many, but there's never enough, right, BJ? Yeah, and I think it constantly fluctuates too. Yeah, <laughs> and and you you went and saw the uh... Rick's picks. Yeah, there were a lot of guitars there. Um, maybe a shit ton. There's your official answer. A shit. <laughs> All righty. Well, we'd like to just say hello to everybody out there on the Cheap Trick message board on the uh, Cheap Talk Facebook page, and then there's the Sure I Love Cheap Trick, but Facebook page and uh, the God of the 12 string Facebook page and the RZB Facebook page. We just want to say hi to everybody. If we didn't mention you, we love you very much. And uh, not to get too kissy with things, but Kiss got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Do you think next year is Cheap Trick's turn? Unfortunately, probably not. You know, even yeah. if they got nominated, which I don't expect to see anytime soon, but who knows? I, I don't know. Well, let me put it this way. If Motley Crue gets in there before Cheap Trick, I'm going to be really upset. Yeah, I don't expect to see Motley Crue anytime soon either. <laughs> I don't either, but who knows? Monkeys and Cheap Trick, those are the two people I really feel that yeah. I want on a personal basis. 
you know, this year LL Cool J got nominated, so. Oh, thank God. That's kind of where things are at. <laughs> I remember when I first heard rock and roll, LL Cool J was there. Yeah. Uh-huh. All righty. Let's turn that page. <laughs> so let's go to Cheap Trick 101. And we're focusing on the move. BJ, what can you tell us about Cheap Trick and their love for the move? Take it away, my friend. Well, it seems to me that the move are probably Rick Nielsen's favorite band. I, I haven't, I don't know if I've heard him actually say that, but um, they're definitely one of the most influential bands on Cheap Trick, you would have to say. I think yeah. we were talking about how probably after the Beatles, you would say the move are probably the next most important band in the Cheap Trick story. All right. Well, they certainly use that one riff of theirs, you know, that, that one that goes up and down, that little move that they use all the time. Yeah, and they've actually released, what, three, their own versions of three different move songs and, uh -huh. and a, another Roy Wood song that he wrote after the move. So four different Roy Wood songs they've actually released their own versions of. So. And it's weird, but the move went on to become, part of the move went on to become ELO. Yeah. A lot of people know them as well. And isn't there, isn't it rumored that Elo Kitties is ELO? Like yeah. a shout out to them? That's definitely one theory, yeah. And they did, you know, ELO is capitalized in the song title and then, so, yeah, I think that's a, I think that was part of it. It was kind of an homage. And ELO yeah. definitely were probably, probably just incorporated in with the move as part of the influence on Rick Nielsen. You can definitely hear an ELO influence in Cheap Trick, too. Mm-hmm. Like, when I hear things like, long, long time ago, like, I could hear ELO doing that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Things like that. So that's, that's pretty cool. So uh, where do we start? Well, the, the move formed in Birmingham, England in December of 65. And uh, Birmingham is the most populous city, British city, after London. So, uh -huh. and yeah, so they formed in '65, which is pretty early in the story of rock and roll. You know, the the Who and the Kinks formed in '64. Right. So the move aren't, you know, aren't far after that. And um, and they were all kind of veterans of previous bands too. All the guys in the move, and also from uh, Birmingham were the Moody Blues and um, Steve Winwood, and then later Sabbath and Priest both came out of Birmingham, too. So the mover made up of Roy Wood, Carl Wayne, Ace Kefford on bass, Carl Wayne was the singer, and uh, Trevor Burton on guitar, original, that's the original lineup. And uh, they, they ended up uh, being managed by Tony Secunda, who was the manager of the Moody Blues and Proco Harum, and later he managed uh, T-Rex and Motorhead. And so he started managing them in 66, and Tony uh, Secunda was big on publicity stunts. Um, like, the band signed their original recording contract on the back of a topless model. <laughs> and, um, they, and his, but his publicity stunts ended up getting them in trouble eventually. But uh, they actually, in 67, they had a six-episode TV series in England. But, a lot, you know, there were a lot of those TV shows... Um, you know, like T-Rex had a TV show, but uh, the band The Arrows, they're the band that originally wrote and recorded I, Lo I Love Rock and Roll that Joan Jett made famous. Oh, yeah, yeah. They yeah. had a TV show, and there were a lot of those, you know, 
So they so the move had a six episode TV series, which um, they had they had other bands come on and stuff, and uh, they had um, Pink Floyd with uh, Sid Barrett came on their show. But from what I read, no no footage uh, still exists of the Moves TV show. It's all gone. But um, what was it about? I'd probably just like a variety show. They would have people, they, the move probably perform songs and then they would have other people come on and talk, maybe an actor and then, you know, like other bands and maybe they did like skits or something like that, you know? Amazing. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, like I was saying, Secunda, he was in the publicity stunts and stuff. And at one point he had the band dressing up, dressing up as like mobsters. They were all in like black suits with derby hats and then he decided they were going to be hippies to try to capitalize on flower power. So they switched from dressing like mobsters to dressing like hippies. And um, their first single, Night of Fear, came out in January of 67. It was written by Roy Wood but sung by Carl Wayne. Well, Roy, they would kind of share the vocals at first. Carl, like One of them might sing the verse and the other one the chorus and stuff like that. Okay. Um, but Carl Wayne was actually the lead singer at first, and he was kind of the most, he had a little more uh, pre-move fame. Uh, he was in a band called the Vikings before the move. And they act, the Vikings actually performed in Hamburg in that same scene that the, where, um, with the Beatles, you know, that, that red light district in Hamburg. Yes. Um, the Vikings were part of that probably after the Beatles. But um, So Carl Wayne had a little more clout, I guess, and fame uh, at the beginning of the move, and he was the lead, he was the front man at first, and um, so "Night of Fear" was their first single. It went to number two on the charts. And then their second single, I Can Hear the Grass Grow, um, which was a, like a much heavier song. The Night of Fear, I think it was sort of based around, they, they took something from a Tchaikovsky piece and kind of incorporated it into in Night of Fear, Roy Wood did. Okay. And then I Can Hear the Grass Grow was more of just a straight, straight ahead rock song. Their second single, that went to number five. <laughs> So their first two singles, both top ten. Then their third single, Flowers in the Rain, uh, was number two. 
single, and that was actually the first song to be played on the very first day of BBC Radio One. So really? that, that's a pretty big historical moment, um, I guess. In you know, especially in Brit in British rock music. So that shows you how big the move were at the time. I mean, their first three singles were all top ten, and "Flowers in the Rain" was the first song ever so, played on Radio so, One. So, so they were a band that were literally on the move. They were moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry about that. You can beat me later. Um, now, were they ever a part of the originals and then broke up and later formed the new originals? Is that any of that or? Or is that Spinal Tap? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, you're right. The Spinal Tap story is kind of similar to the, the early move story with the flower power and everything. <laughs> Isn't that every band that was around that period? Seriously. It's yeah. just like, but you really can't get a much better line than the new originals line because I can see that happening with so many different bands. Well, and you know, Slade went through the same thing where their manager convinced them to take to be like skinheads, you mm -hmm. know, not with the Nazi connotations, but just, uh, you know, in Britain at the time they had crew cuts and wore like sleeveless T-shirts and they were like working men, you know, they had that image for a while, and then of course the Slade image later on was the crazy glam image. So they, you know, I guess uh, with these managers at the time just trying to figure out anything that would get the public's attention. And, for um, five seconds to get a, ch a charting song, anything to make that happen. Yeah, but uh, like I said earlier, Tony Secunda's publicity stunts came back to bite the band in the butt because uh, to promote that Flowers in the Rain single, he had a, a cartoon postcard made up. Supposedly it was without the band's knowledge where he had the prime minister at the time. It was a, it was a cartoon with the prime minister, Harold Wilson, in bed with his secretary. My <laughs> And so Harold Wilson actually sued the band, and every penny that was ever earned by Flowers in the Rain had to go to a charity that he chose. So that was pretty much Roy Wood's biggest hit, and he never made a penny off of it. And it was all because of Tony Secunda. I read that even after um, Harold Wilson died, the money still kept going to that charity. Roy Wood never saw a dime from that single. Ouch. So after that, not surprisingly, they fired Tony Secunda and actually replaced him with Don Arden, who um, is Sharon Osbourne's dad. And oh. uh, he was the manager of Black Sabbath. So the move actually toured with Black Sabbath early on opening for them. So they had those first three singles, and then March 68 is when their first album came out. Um, and I think that included their, uh, their next single, Fire Brigade, which was number three single. So their first four singles are all top ten now. So yeah, like Paul Stam said on Facebook, um, he, I think he mentioned that uh, the move were influential on Paul Stanley. And yeah, Paul Stanley has actually said in interviews that 
Firehouse was inspired by Fire Brigade, the move song. And also, um, Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols admitted that they lifted the riff from Fire Brigade for God Save the Queen. I can hear that. Yeah, so that's the what? That's their fourth single, Fire Brigade, number three single, and then uh, their fifth single, Wild Tiger Woman, actually flopped. It didn't even chart. What but, a weird name for a single. Wow. Yeah, they were definitely trying to go in a different direction with that song. It was much more of a like traditional rock song. So Wild Tiger Woman didn't. It didn't have the same kind of personality, I guess, as their early singles did. But then their sixth single. Blackberry Way was their first number one hit. And that's February 69. And that song was produced by Jimmy Miller, who produced Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile on Main Street. And, um, and he produced the first two Motorhead records later, too, Jimmy Miller. So they have a number one hit. Um, then October 69 is when they did their only tour they did of the U.S. Um, they played a couple of shows in Detroit where they opened for the Stooges, and they played shows in L.A. and San Francisco. They played at the Fillmore, but I think that's really all they ever did in the United States to move. You know, they never had even close to a hit in the U.S. or anything. They're one of those bands, you know, there's a lot of examples of bands, like we talked about Slade earlier, that were really huge in the UK or in Europe and ha didn't even make a blip hardly in the United States. And then I'm sure there's a lot of US bands that were huge here that weren't, you know, big over there. But um, there's even uh, a theory of some bands being really huge in Japan and then coming back and becoming big in our country. <laughs> yeah, that that's there have been some examples of that, too. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but uh, on. Anyway, so when do you think that uh, Rick primarily became aware of the move? Rick and Bun became aware of the move. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, they were already playing in bands probably not too long after the move formed. You know, Bunny had the Pagans. Did you see on Facebook Bunny actually said there's going to be a Pagans reunion this I year? Know. 
amazing. Yeah. And, um, you know, Rick, Rick was in uh, the Grim Reapers and stuff. You know, that's all in the 60s. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It, probably pretty early on, um, Rick probably got into the move. So October of 69 was when they played those shows in the U.S. And then January of 1970, Carl Wayne, the front man, leaves the band. And he eventually ends up being replaced by Jeff Lynne, who is also from Birmingham. And Jeff Lynne had a band at the same time as The Move called The Idle Race, very similar to The Move. Um, they had some really great songs. A song by The Idle Race I really love is a song called um, Days of the Broken Arrows, which is on, it's on one of the, the Nuggets box sets that Rhino put out in the 90s. Yeah. It's a really great song. So Jeff Lynn comes into the move, and he's, uh, he's not exactly a replacement for Carl Wayne because he, de he doesn't really become the front man of the move. He, you know, Roy Wood has kind of moved into the position of front man by this time. Roy Wood's been writing all the songs, and um, you know, he used to share vocals with Carl Wayne, but eventually he started singing lead vocals. I think uh, Fire Brigade was the first song that Roy Wood sang the complete lead vocal, and that was the third single. So. What's, what's different after uh, Jeff Lynne joins the band is that they still keep putting out kind of the popular singles, but the albums that they release, they, the, 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 you know, like a lot of bands at the time, the singles aren't on the records. And the record, the Moves albums are a lot heavier and like more experimental and longer songs and stuff than, than the, the pop singles. So uh, February of 70, their second album, Shazam, comes out and... I would assume that was recorded that was recorded before Jeff Lynne joined the band, but it didn't include any of the singles and it was a pretty heavy album and that's when they toured uh, the UK with Sabbath on the back of that album. And then uh, December of 70, they released their third album, Looking On. And by this time, so that's the first album with, where Jeff Lynne participated and he wrote two of the songs on the record too. And that's also the album that includes Brontosaurus, which was a number seven hit and uh, Brontosaurus, I believe, was the first uh, song they ever recorded with Jeff Lynne in the band.
And of course, Cheap Trick fans are familiar with Brontosaurus for two reasons. One, they play the riff during California Man as kind of an homage to the song. And then later in the 90s, they recorded the song. It's on the it's the B-side of the Sub Pop, the Baby Talk single that they did with Steve Albini. Well, the band loves that riff. That song, the single came out earlier in 1970 than, than the record did. And uh, I mean, that's a really early heavy you know he- pretty heavy rock song there weren't a lot of songs that were that heavy and that riffy at the time you know uh-huh. so you i mean yeah that that's probably i would suspect that's one of the songs that rick nielsen heard and it kind of blew his mind you know definitely and then uh 71 the band's last album comes out called message from the country which is a really heavy record and that that album was an even split between Roy Wood and Jeff Lynne as far as songwriting. Jeff was coming into his own. Yeah. And, you know, he was a song a songwriter and front man, you know, in the idol race before the move. So um, it was probably natural when he joined the band that he was going to be part of the creative process. Roy Wood probably wanted that, I would, I would think. Um, but they definitely did butt heads at the time. Also, th- as the story goes, when Jeff Lynn uh, joined the move... Roy Wood had already come up with this idea of starting another band, which he wanted to call the Electric Light Orchestra. And Roy Wood wanted he his vision was to start a band that would incorporate like stringed instruments and woodwind instruments and just bring a lot of different influences like in the rock and roll. And uh, Roy Wood played all those different instruments too. Like after after he leaves ELO, he has a couple of solo albums where Roy Wood plays every single instrument. Um, he's got a, an album that came out in 73 called Boulders, which has all kinds of woodwind instruments and stuff on it, and he plays everything. So, and that was his original vision with ELO. And um, so Electric Light Orchestra was Roy Wood's idea. He named the band, and Jeff Lynne really liked the idea, and so they kind of wanted to just leave the move behind and do Electric Light Orchestra, but Don Arden, the manager, he convinced them to keep the move name going and keep releasing like some popular singles so they could keep an income coming in while they like while they tried to figure out exactly what they were going to do with ELO. Right. So basically at the same time they were writing and recording the first Electric Light Orchestra album, they were also still doing 
uh, singles with the move. So the, their last album uh, mess was Message from the Country, but after that they put out a couple more poppy singles, uh, really great songs, two, probably two of my favorite move songs, a song called Tonight and then a song called Chinatown. Those were both Roy Wood singles in 1971, and the B-side of Chinatown was Down on the Bay. <laughs> And then, in 1972, The Move released their final single. The A-side is California Man, and the B-side is a song called Do Ya. Wow. And Do You was actually the only song, the only move song that charted at all in the United States. It made it all the way to number 93 on the charts in the U.S. And that's the only blip that the move ever made in the United States as far as, you know, even being noticed at all, you know, besides 
big music, big rock fans like Rick Nielsen, you know, they were in the know. But uh, as far as the Billboard charts, the moves, the moves version of Do Ya from 72 made it to 93. And then, of course, that song was a hit. I think it was a number, like a top 20 hit for ELO in uh, 77. Yeah, they later re-recorded it. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's the 72, that last single, California Man and Do Ya. That's the end of the move. And um, the first ELO album actually had come out in the UK in 71, but it didn't come out in the US until 1972. And uh, when it came out in Europe, it was just a self-titled record. But there's a really funny story. When the album was released in the US, it, it was given the album title No Answer. And the reason for that is because the record company's secretary was trying to call the, from the record label in the U.S., she was trying to call the record label over there to find out what the album title was, and she just wrote down a note. When nobody answered the phone, she wrote down no answer. <laughs> and then that, that, that ended up becoming the name of the record. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. That album, that first ELO album, featured the song uh, 10538 Overture, which was written by Jeff Lynne, and it was a top 10 hit in the UK. And then ELO, after Red was out of the band, they also re-recorded that song as well. But yeah, um, from, my, from what I read, you know, there was a lot of tension between Roy Wood and Jeff Lynne at that time, like a power struggle. I mean, obviously, you can see from what Jeff Lynne did with ELO after Roy Wood left, you know, he, I guess, it was Roy Wood's band at first, but Jeff Lynne's, you know, probably started kind of taking over right away. And I think they wanted to take the band in very different directions. Roy Wood probably wanted to be a much more eccentric kind of art, artsy band and, and Jeff Lynne obviously wanted to make it a much more pop influenced band I guess and you know so they, they went their separate ways and then you can hear uh, if you listen to that to Roy Wood's uh, first solo album in 73 Boulders that's probably more the direction he wanted to take ELO in where mm -hmm. which it, there's a lot of strange things going on like one song the percussion of the song is dripping water unlock the door it's time again to leave Oh, 
and okay. you know he and he's got a lot of like I was saying woodwind instruments like flutes and bassoons and stuff like that on that record too but it's a really great album it's mostly acoustic it's mostly pretty mellow but I like it a lot you know Roy Wood he also at the same time he was doing the solo stuff right after the move in ELO he had a band called Wizard which were a, a much heavier kind of glam rock band and he would wear he wore all kinds of crazy makeup like war paint type makeup and the, the, I mean, the, the image of Wizard was really over-the-top glam, and their, the, the music, some of it was really heavy. I guess it was pretty, pretty similar to The Move, because Wizard put out the pop singles, but then the records were, like, really heavy rock albums. Right. And, you know, Roy Wood kept having hits with Wizard. Um, I think the first Wizard single in 73, Ballpark Incident... That was top ten, and then the second Wizard single, "See My Baby Jive," was was number one on the charts for four weeks. And the third Wizard single was also a number one hit called Angel Fingers. And so Ballpark Incident is a pretty heavy song. And then See My Baby Jive is a lot poppier, and Angel Fingers is really, really poppy. But then the first Wizard album, Wizard Brew, none of those songs are on the album, and it's just a really heavy, raucous record with long songs. So it's pretty much the same as the movie. You did the pop singles and then the heavy albums. And uh, so I talked about his solo album, Boulders, in 73, and then he had a single he put out just as Roy Wood, a great, really great song called Forever.
that that was that was only a single. That was in '73, and it, that was a top ten hit as well. That's a great song. And then 1974, the second Wizard album comes out. It's called Eddie and the Falcons, and that's the record. A lot, a lot of that record, he he kind of did a similar thing to Sgt. Pepper's, where it was. It seems like the record was recorded as this imaginary band called Eddie and the Falcons, and a lot of it was kind of like 50s influenced. But yeah. that, but that's the album that we're we're gonna rock and roll tonight is on, which Cheap I Trick. I say. Yeah, Cheap Trick later recorded on Busted. That's on Eddie and the Falcons in '74. And then Roy Wood had a couple more hit singles in the 70s. Um, oh, What a Shame in 75. I think that was released just as Roy Wood, not as Wizard. That was number 13. And it, also in 75, he put out another solo album called Mustard, which is a really great record. And he plays every song, every instrument, I mean, on that album as well. And Mustard is really great. Probably better than Boulder's as far as his solo records go. So let me ask you a question. I'm a Cheap Trick fan. Why should I care about the move? Well, like we said, you know, there's a reason that Cheap Trick have recorded and released three different move songs over the course of their career. And also they, you know, recorded and released another Roy Wood song, a Wizard song. And you, I mean, if you listen back to the move, you can definitely hear how influential they were on Cheap Trick. The move, go, have they, go, they, 
you know, their music runs the spectrum from really poppy and kind of eccentric stuff with a lot of personality all the way to really heavy, you know, crazy, you know, especially with Wizard too, Roy Wood did really over the top heavy, loud, crazy music as well. And, you know, Cheap Trick are, uh, how many bands are there that have that wide of a spectrum, you know, from the really poppy, really nice, pretty melodies all the way to just crazy, heavy, and everything in between. You, uh, we uh, discussed Mike Hayes earlier, and uh, he actually asked Roy Wood of The Move to write the intro for Reputation is a Fragile Thing. So there's another cheap trick, Move, Roy Wood connection there. And then that, that, would, that had to be a big thrill for Mike. We'd like to say hi to Mike. And we also want that book to be... Uh, re-release so we're we're still working on that we still want that to happen yeah definitely i would love to see the updated version too that he was talking about i mean he said he actually has a pdf of a it's updated all the way through i think it was through rockford maybe that he had updated it so we we keep uh you know just sending out a little hello there to mike and ken and we just hope that that happens soon uh, how do you think that the move influenced Rick's songwriting other than that one riff that they use continually? <laughs> I always used to tell my stepson that uh, if you're playing Cheap Trick on guitar and you don't know where to go, just play that riff from California, man. Yeah. Rick, Rick throws that in a lot. Yeah, I, I think it's just like I was saying, the... the um the really poppy melodies, the really pretty, intricate melodies, and a lot of personality. You know, Roy Wood's songs have a lot of personality, and they're very individual. You know, they don't really sound like anything else. Right. And he would write a really, a really poppy song and also a really crazy heavy song and put them, put them out in the same year. You know. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's the same thing Rick Nielsen has done. So. Who do you think are the biggest three influences on Cheap Trick? Well, yeah, like we like we said, the Beatles, the Move, and then I don't know who would you put Elvis? next. Maybe Elvis, because wasn't Rick really into Elvis growing up? Yeah, I'm sure he was. You know, a lot of it's Rick's. A lot of Rick's favorite bands that he's talked about over the years are all of these kind of eccentric uh, British bands. That were never, no one really knows in the U.S. Like one band he talks about a lot is Pato, P-A-T-T-O. Which if you listen to Pato, it's hard to even hear, it's hard to hear any cheap trick influence in there. But um, you know, it's really. I remember a story. Uh, Billy Corgan, uh, in an interview, he said that Rick Nielsen was telling him, "You gotta, you gotta hear this band Pato." So he bought the record for like fifty bucks. And he put it on, and he hated it after like thirty seconds. He just thought it was the worst thing. And Do yeah, Pato. Yeah, yeah, and I don't let's, like it very much either. It's very. Let's, let's throw a tiny bit of that on here right now, just so people can hear okay. what what Rick Nielsen was into there. Yeah, this is a song called I Got Rhythm, which Cheap Trick actually used to do back in like 74, 75. They used to play this song live.
swing low, ready, steady, go, man, go. Work hard, wag my tail. Bare chest, I'm a pure-eyed male. Six foot one, I'm a son of a gun. See my prayers when the day's done. Grandfather, Africa. Big lips, heaps on ten. I love my dog. I love my dog. Ride the bus back in the cars. Know my place, I keep my face. When it's time, I'm still alright. Got rhythm. Yeah, yeah, I got rhythm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why they call me names? Why'd you call me names? Well, and another one of those, I was saying Rick Nielsen was really into the, like, the weird, eccentric British rock bands. And okay. another one would be a band called Family, um, Roger Chapman's band. They were, they were also, I mean, just a pretty odd kind of bluesy British rock band with a lot of weird, just very eccentric, you know. And um, a cu- they, uh, Cheap Trick used to do a couple of Family songs in their early live set, too. And so they're playing, you know, they're playing these bands that definitely nobody in the audience has any idea what it is, and maybe are just assuming that those are original songs, you know. But uh, so yeah, I mean, you were saying what are the bands that were the biggest influence on Cheap Trick? Well, if you look at the kind of stuff that Rick Nielsen was into, he was just into some really odd, eccentric music that nobody else, especially in the United States, really knew about, you know. I mean, these bands are even more obscure than The Move, you know, Pato and Family and stuff, so... But who who would you say would be the third band after The Beatles and The Move? Well, I'm going to go with Elvis again. Yeah, I, yeah. It, it really... I mean, Rick grew up in a very musical house, and he... he sure, he, he loved the blues, what he heard of it, and he loved this other stuff that he heard, but there was something about Elvis it was like the complete package it was like boom and the guys have uh, done a couple Elvis things and uh, they tried to help uh, Scotty Moore out uh, with all the Kingsman album and stuff like that and uh, you know I I really think that that's the thing and there's a picture we saw recently on our Facebook page someone posted a picture of Rick he's like in a cowboy outfit holding a guitar it's just hard to think that little kid he never stopped wearing weird outfits, but he's, you know, still doing that. <laughs> yeah. So, so who would you say is the third? If 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 not Elvis, pick pick someone else. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, it would be since Rick Nielsen has you know done done most of the songwriting over mm-hmm. the years. I think it would just be 
try to think of a band that, you know, influenced his songwriting. And, you know, besides the Beatles and the move, it's hard to... Yardbirds. I, I mean, I can hear the, the Yardbirds in, in some of what they do at times. Yeah, sure, you could. Yeah, and then you've, I mean, you know, when Cheap Trick started out, they were practically a punk band, too. Well, not when they started, but, you know, by the time they recorded the first album. Yeah, by I the mean, time the first album landed, they were almost punk. Yeah, you could almost... You know, they've always they've always been such an original band because they could almost fit in the so many different categories. It's there's never been a band like that that you could have called punk, power pop, metal, glam rock. You know, all at the same time. Well, if there's any disappointment I have in Cheap Trick, it's that they didn't keep a lot of that first three albums through the rest of their career at times. Um, like for example, there are cheap trick albums that have teeth and cheap trick albums that don't have teeth. Yeah, and uh, I'll just let it go at that. I think um, it, it came with the success, and then with the um, the pressure from the record company and all of that kind of stuff, and just uh, trying to maintain the momentum. And it's really strange to think that like new wave, whether it was the new wave British metal or the new wave uh, punk kind of you know weird music stuff. That Cheap Trick had to find uh, their footing again, even though, when you think about it, they were ahead of the curve. Does that make any sense? Yeah, they well, they were just. I mean, they were just in their their own world. They were. There just wasn't wasn't another band like them. Right, and there still isn't. But if you you know even if you look at you know, after they they you know hit their peak with Budokan and then Dream Please, look what they did next. They did All Shook Up, which is probably closest to sounding like the first album of any of anything else. And then they did One on One, which is really heavy. A lot. I mean, you know, you've got a lot of heavy metal and a lot of like pop punk in there. So, you know, they did try to they did kind of follow their own path, but then it at, at some point they kind of gave into the. I guess they just wanted to keep their record deal and you know make a living, and then they kind of tried to, they tried out different things to see what would work. And right. Well, unfor I, unfortunately, when they gave in to the record company completely, that's when they you know had more success. Right. So, is there a great move, uh, greatest hits, or something that you would recommend that a Cheap Trick fan, if they're if Let's say they've heard this thing. I want to check these guys out. Where would you send somebody? Is there like a greatest hitch you'd have them go to or an album or what would you have them listen to? Yeah, you would definitely want to go to like a greatest hits because like I said, none of the singles are really on the albums. I think some of the singles are on their very first album, but then it would depend on, you know, if you want to hear the poppier singles or if you want to hear the heavy, heavy rock that they did on the records, you know? Right. Um, I haven't looked. I should look. I haven't looked, but I suspect it's probably all pretty much on iTunes. Yeah, or Amazon. The and yeah, and you know, people have been able to hear a lot of a lot of clips from all the different songs, so they can uh, pick out what they like, and you know, they could probably just go to iTunes and buy whichever songs. Um, like I said, the the records, you know, Shazam, Looking On, Message from the Country, those are heavy, heavier songs, longer songs. 
And then, you know, there's all the pop, all the many pop singles that Roy Wood wrote as well. I would highly recommend Roy Wood's other stuff too, like, um, especially his two solo albums, Boulders and Mustard. Those are great. Very cool, very cool. Well, I think that's a good look at our Cheat Trick 101 class, The Move, and why you should care about them. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this. Let's take a look at what we're wanting to do for future shows. Uh, one thing I want to do is get Ron Albanese on the show. He's going to want to talk about his time uh, working with the band and their fan publications. And also, he wants to talk about his favorite underappreciated Cheap Trick album. You want to guess which one it is? His favorite underappreciated? Yeah. Hmm. The yeah. Doc. The Doctor, huh? Yeah, that, somebody well, who wants to stand up for the doctor. So, I don't know if it's underappreciated. It's unappreciated because <laughs> <laughs> there's some great stuff on there. There really is. Like, take me to the top. Great song. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there there are the production issues, but like, it's up to you. Is a great song, and yeah. there's still trick always shines no matter what. There's something that comes through. You know, you, you saddle them with the worst producer in the world, that something will come out of it. There's just too much talent in that band not to. We also want to do an interview with Todd Howarth, who he was uh, a member of Fraley's Comet, but more important than that to our show, uh, he was also a member of the Cheap Trick Touring Band, and uh, he's got some cool, fun stories to tell, and Todd's never shy with his opinions and thoughts, so that should be a good show. As far as our roundtables where we talk about our albums, we're going to put a poll up and ask you folks which one you want next. So we'll be doing that soon, so look for that next month. And we're also going to find some interview shows where we'll find interviews that the, the guys have done uh, through the past, and we're going to make some shows out of them. So uh, it'll be fun to hear some of those old Cheap Trick interviews and frame them in the time that they are and talk about them so anything else you'd like to add bj um i just checked and um pretty much all the move stuff is on itunes and pretty much there's a lot of roy wood stuff on there but unfortunately mustard his album from 75 is not on itunes or amazon uh you can get the cd on amazon for 184 dollars <laughs> oh well i'll i'm gonna buy two One but um, probably your best bet with mustard is just trying to find the record um, but if I was going to recommend anything from the Roy Wood catalog, I would probably recommend Mustard. It's just a really great album. And if you have an extra 180 to $200, you could probably get a nice copy of it. So. Yeah. There you go. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Cheap Talk, your cheap trick audio fanzine. We, uh, we'll see you next month, and we'll see you on the Facebook pages. Be good. Oh, keep cheap tricking.
that's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members past or present. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap tricking. Okay. All right. Coolness. Okay. <laughs> Good going, BJ. <laughs>